Genesis chapter 1. We're starting a new series this morning, going through the book of Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, start at the very beginning. I'm, this is familiar to most, most of us, and so I'm not going to read all of both first chapters. I'm just going to read a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, we'll start. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Skip down to verse 26. And then God said, let us Make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I think it's universal where kids fight over uh, which character they're going to play in their favorite stories. All right. So, so I remember doing this growing up, right? It's like, no, I'm going to be the blue ranger. I mean, the green ranger, right? No, no, I get to be this, you know, Ninja Turtle or whatever. My, my, my girls the other day, this was reminding me of it. My girls were fighting. They're like, no, I'm Pikachu. You can't be Pikachu, right? And it's like, why can't you both be Pikachu? You can't, that's, that's against the rules. Only one person gets to be Pikachu, okay? And so there's this thing about what are our favorite stories and we, we want so badly to enter into them, right? Even, even as adults, as we watch our favorite movies or read our favorite books or, or whatever, we want to enter into them. We want to be the superhero. We want to be the white knight. We want to be the princess in the castle. We want to be the wizard headed to Hogwarts on our 12th birthday. The problem is when we do that same thing with the Bible, when we try to enter ourselves into the story of the Bible as a particular character of the Bible, the problem is, is that usually the person we're trying to enter into, that role has been taken. But we don't see that, and we want to enter, insert ourselves into the story. We want to be the heroes of the story. Right? Like, so think about for a minute with me, David and Goliath. I mean, we think, we, we've been taught, we've whatever, that we're David, and when, when Goliaths come in your life, when giants come in your life, you need to take up your stones of faith, sling them at your giants, and, and conquer them. Right? And that's what we've been taught. But let me ask you this question. What happens when you miss? What happens when you sling that stone at Goliath and you miss? Well, Brent, I got five stones. What happens when you miss all five? What do you do then? You see, when we put ourselves into the story as the wrong character... We put a weight on our shoulders that we were not meant to bear and cannot bear. Here's what Jesus did after Jesus was resurrected. He spent 40 days in the earth and he met with his disciples. And over those 40 days, he taught them. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. So when we read the Bible particularly the Old Testament. We have to not insert ourselves as the heroes of the story, but see the one to whom is actually the hero. See, Jesus in all of it, we've entitled uh, this series that every story whispers his name. 
Because as we walk through Genesis, we will see just that. And so what we've got to do as we look at Genesis 1 and and the rest of it is we've got to take our New Testament glasses. Man, I can't see anything. We've got to take our New Testament glasses, put them on, and read the Old Testament in light of the new. We have to read the prophecy in light of the fulfillment, the signs in light of what they pointed to. Some of you are not going to know this movie, but you remember the movie The Sixth Sense? You know, I See Dead People. The little boy, and he sees, he sees dead people. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I can remember at the end, spoiler alert, okay? If you haven't seen it by now, I'm sorry. At the end of the movie, you find out the, Bruce Willis, whoever he plays, in the end is dead. And the boy could see him all along. And at the end, you're like, what? But have you ever gone back to watch it a second time? Because if you have, you will see all sorts of things that were so obvious but you never, you couldn't see them. But the second time you're like, oh my gosh, how did I miss that? Because you knew the end of the story. And so as you read, as you watched the story, it was all plain to you. We have to do the same thing with the Bible. As we know the end, we can understand the beginning. We see Jesus on every page. Here's really what I'm trying to say subtly, but I love you too much to say it too subtly. So I'm just gonna say it outright. The Bible's not about you. All right, we like, I had a t-shirt in high school that said the Bible is a roadmap for life, right? It's not the point, right? The Bible does kind of guide our life a little bit, but the Bible's not about you. The Bible's about God. The Bible's about God and what he is doing. You remember in Sunday school growing up, uh, what was the answer to every question? Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And so I brought my favorite children's Bible devotional that if you don't have a copy, you need to get one. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's so good. I gave it to one of my best friends who's probably 40 years old and he's reading it to his daughters and he came back to me and he was so excited. He said, Brent, I never knew the Bible was about Jesus. I said, I want to read to you a section from the beginning of this. It says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It is about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you the people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. So this is what we're going to try to do as we walk through Genesis. My goal from now to Easter is to show you again and again and again that in in Genesis, uh, that Jesus is the hero of the story and it's not you and it's not me. 
that every story is creating and it's longing for his arrival, that every story indeed whispers his name. So let's dive in. Father, we thank you so much um, that you from the very beginning had one plan. That your plan didn't change, that, that like it didn't work out with Israel, and so we've got we've to pivot, because that's not what happened. But from the very beginning, from day one, there was one plan, that you would send your son to redeem the world. And God, we're thankful that you have accomplished your plan. Father, now as we look at the beginning, show us your plan from the very beginning. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Genesis 1 and 2 are known for their controversy. Right? I remember being in, in high school, I loved debating uh, evolution, right? Like, like, do you hold the gap theory? Are you, are you a young earth? Are you old earth, right? There's a whole museum dedicated to this, like just a couple hours away, right? And so it's, it's, it's all the controversy, right? Is it old? Is it young? Whatever. And so I loved debating people about that in high school. And I thought if I could just prove to them that evolution was bogus, then they'd get saved, I later found out that I have never led or seen anyone come to Christ because someone else proved evolution wrong to them. That every person I've ever led or seen come to Christ wasn't like a a change in creationism for evolution, but, but rather their hearts became full with the truth, goodness, and beauty of Jesus. And they stood in awe and wonder that they needed him. You see, I don't think the point of Genesis 1 and 2 is to show us the particulars of how God made the world. I don't think it's here to show us precisely what he did. Instead, I think it was written so that we would stand and wonder at the truth, goodness, and beauty as he is creator and praise him for it. So this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the who, the how, and the why of creation so that we too can stand in awe of the creator. So this book was written 3,500 years ago by Moses. 3,500 years ago by Moses. And in 3,500 years ago, do you know what was happening? Moses was uh, with the Israelites and they were about to go into the promised land. But do you know who did not get to go into the promised land? Moses. Because he disobeyed God. He was supposed to speak to a rock. Instead, he hit a rock. And you hit a rock, you don't get to go in. And so Moses doesn't get to go in. And he's getting ready to pass on the leadership to Joshua. And they're going to go into the promised land together. The promised land that has been described as a land flowing with milk and honey. But there, is, there are also dangers in the promised land. And they're not just enemies with swords, but the, the biggest dangers are the rival gods and idols that they are about to encounter. And so, they've just left Egypt, rival gods, rival idols. They're going into a promised land with rival gods and ri- rival idols. And so Moses sits down to write the book of Genesis to prepare the people of God for the trials of living in a pluralistic society, of the trials of living in a society full of religious options. He writes Genesis 1 and 2 in the whole book so that they can walk into that lion's den and come out still believing that God is Yahweh, that he is their God and they are his people. You see, this book matters for us because like Israel, we too live in a pluralistic society. You see, Genesis was written for people 3,500 years ago, but through the care and providence of God, it was also written for us today. Because like Israel, we live in a world of false gods and false idols. For the first time in human history, this is interesting, virtually everybody is faced with every possible belief system. For the first time in human history, we have all of the options. 
Historically, you grew up in your family, in your town, in your village, your city, and you really only knew what your family believed, and so you just believed what your family believed. Even up to 20 years ago, there was a thing in America called cultural Christianity, where we pretty much thought if you were American, you were a Christian. It was so ingrained in American life that if you were going to be a successful politician, you had to be a member of a church. Whether you believed it or not was irrelevant, but you had to look the part, right? And you had to be a member of a church. That is no longer true. Cultural Christianity is gone. We live in a secular world. One where every religious belief option is at your fingertips. And not only belief in the supernatural, but the most popular belief, that is, that the material world is all there is. That what you can see, taste, touch, and feel is really all that there is in the world. And that this whole place, it was the, was of random chance that it happened. That there is no God and the material universe is all there is and all that will ever be. You see, Genesis 1 and 2 are here for us this morning so that we can live in a pluralistic world and we can raise our children in this world without caving to the pressure to follow the world. But we can raise our children to know that there is a God in heaven. You see, Moses wrote Genesis 1 so that as they saw everyone else worshiping the moon God and the sun God and the rain God and the God of fertility and so on and so on, that they would have confidence and an unwavering belief that there is a God in heaven who made all things, that there is not a moon God, but rather one God made the moon, that there is no sun God named Ra, but there is one God who made the sun. There are not many gods, but there is one. You see, but there's more than that. It's more than Moses just writing them so that they know that there's one God. You see, Moses writes even greater than he understands because we got to put our New Testament glasses on. And there's more here than even that. You see, the first giveaway of this is in the first line. Notice the very first line in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God, Elohim, is plural. Not in your Bible, you wouldn't notice it, but in Hebrew, Elohim is plural. That means multiple gods, it would seem. And the word created... Is singular. And so this is giving something away. As we put our New Testament glasses on, we see more clearly what's happening, that there are not many gods creating, but what is happening here? Notice what the, what the text says. It says in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Spirit of God. You see, we know that the Spirit of God is not just an extension of who God is. It's not like just another name for him. The Spirit of God is not even an it. The Spirit of God is a person. It's a him. It's the third person of the Trinity. And notice what he says that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit is doing in creation. He's hovering over the waters. This word hovering is only used in the Bible to describe a bird who is hovering over her eggs or her young, teaching them to fly. And so here the Holy Spirit is hovering, uh, assisting in creation like a mother bird. The Holy Spirit is nurturing creation into existence. But that's not all. You see the Father creating, you see the Spirit creating the world, but there's still another. Do you know the other place in the Bible that begins the same way as Genesis does? In the beginning? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the, and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were created through him and for him and nothing was made without him that was made. Who's the word? 
How does Genesis 1 say God created the world? Did he snap his fingers? Did he clap his hands? Did he wave his wand? No, he spoke. And what John is telling us thousands of years later is that Jesus is the word. You see, when God speaks, it's not just words. God's speaking has agency. God's voice is actually a person. Jesus is the word of God. And so when the father creates, he does so through the son, who is the eternal word of God. The reason the father's words can create the world is because the father's word is the son. It is Jesus. Jesus created the world. Do you know what drives me crazy? It drives me crazy. And and there's a chance that some of you have said this in here. And so don't be offended. Just change your thinking. People say to me sometimes, go, you know, Brent, when God created Jesus, and I'm like, Arr! stop what you're saying. But God didn't create Jesus. Jesus is God, and he was from the very beginning, and Jesus created the world. He is the creator of all things. So the who of creation is Father, Son, Holy Spirit working in harmony and unity together to create the world. The who of creation matters because it shows us that there is something, someone worth worshiping and there's only one worth worshiping. So as we, as you and I live in the secular world, when times are confusing, when culture and trends point to different gods or to the lack of a God, when they point to science or to any, anything else that is supreme, the creation story, this origin story reminds us that there is one God in three persons who is the creator of the world and no one else. But two... The how of creation. Everyone wants this question answered, right? Everyone does. Whether you're Christian or not, everyone wants to know, how do we get here? Like there's all sorts of origin creation stories throughout all cultures, right? How did we get here, right? Uh, uh, Everyone wants to know this answer. But I don't think the burden of Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to answer those questions in the way that we want them answered. Remember, Moses is writing to a group of Israelites to enter into the promised land full of pagan worship. So what is God telling them and us through Moses? All of these other pagan myths, right, of of creation, they all kind of have a similar theme. Either there was a battle of the gods and the blood of the fallen gods somehow created the world. Or uh, or in the Hindu tradition, uh, there was the kind of the chief god that had a thousand heads, arms, and legs, and it was sacrificed and made into butter, and the butter created the world. That one's fun. Um, uh, there are all, all kinds of crazy creation stories through the, through the chaos it was created. But in all of them, it seems that creation was almost an accident or an afterthought. And today's prevailing myth, like I said, is that there is no creation, but rather everything here is random. Everything here is the act of chance. And Moses is reminding them that this world was not at random. It was not created like that. It was created by God. And it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That God who has always existed, who has always created, not created by another God, not through some battle of the gods, who has no beginning, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit set out to create the world by his word of his power with intention and purpose and a plan. This is important. That he had a plan, that it's not random. You see, but also God creates ex nihilo. That's your word for the week. Ex nihilo. It's Latin, which means out of nothing. God creates out of nothing. You see, when we create, what do we do? We rearrange things that are already created. When we build a house, we take things that were already created, rearrange them, and build a house. To build your phone, we took things that were already created to build your phone. But God didn't take things and rearrange them. He took nothing and made it into something. 
I was fascinated this week as uh, Randy 3D printed something for his Instapot. And he made this dragon head spitting out the steam from the Instapot. But he created that out of plastic that he melted down to shape into an image. God created all things from nothing. He made beauty out of nothing. He made complexity and simplicity. He made molecules, atoms, trees, stars, galaxies. But he invented color. He invented taste. He invented sound. He invented pleasure out of nothing. He thought it up in his mind and he spoke it into existence. You see, when we need light, we go and flip a switch. When God needed light, he spoke. And before there was even a sun, he made light. I don't know how. There's no sun, but somehow he made light. See, the universe was designed from nothing by God. It was designed with purpose, with a goal, and with attention to accomplish something. You see, we live in a world where it is said believing in God means you're stuck. We live in a world where people say, if you believe in God, you're old-fashioned, you're contained by the rules and the doctrines of that God, you're stuck. And if you want to be free, you need to let it all go. If you want to be happy and free, they would say, you got to let it all go. Stop talking about this silly God stuff. Believe in science. Believe in the natural world. Believe in what you can see and touch. Have fun now. Because the now is all there is. They say that's the path to freedom. But Moses reminds us to believe in such things does not bring freedom or hope. In fact, it brings the opposite. You see, here's the problem. When you believe that all of this world is the act of random circumstances, what do you do with your pain? What do you do when your loved ones die? What do you do with your suffering? What do you do with racism? What do you do with poverty? What do you do with injustice? Those are just survival of the fittest and they're just part of the random world. They don't mean anything. I don't know how you live like that. But we have a God who creates out of nothing. And if he can create all life from nothing, imagine what he can do with the broken pieces of your life. Imagine, if we believe in a God who made all of this out of nothing, imagine what he can do with the brokenness of your life. See, when you have a God who has designed and fashioned the world with purpose and has hovered over it like a mother dove, tenderly caring for it, your life is not without purpose. Your pain, your grief, everything has purpose. See, no matter what darkness you face, your God is the one who took the darkness that was without form and void and said, let there be light. You see, the how of creation matters, not because we need to understand the intricacies of how we made it. The how of creation matters because when you see your God made everything from nothing, then you know he is powerful enough to make something out of you. Because sometimes we, we, we look at our life and we look at the choices we've made, we look at our past, we look at the brokenness, we look at the pain, the suffering, the death, and we say, what, what in the world could God do with this? But if God can make something of nothing, he can make something out of your mess. He can make something beautiful out of your mess. So the how of creation matters. Finally, the why of creation. To know the who and the how, but we need to know the why. I could read you verse after verse after verse in the Bible, but how God... God's number one reason why he has made the world. I'm going to read you one. The number one reason why he's made the world. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11 says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. 
that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory will not give to another. You see, God is for God. God is for his own glory. If he was for anything less, it would be idolatry. And so God created the world. What is the why he created? He created the world so that his glory would shine across the universe. God created the world so that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. God created the world so that his glory would cover the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. And so here's what happens. God, on day one, he goes and he creates the heavens and the earth and he says it was good. And then he goes and he creates the sky and he says it was good. And then he creates the land and the sea and the plants and he says it was good. And then he creates the sun and the moon and the stars and he says they were good and then he creates the animals and he says they were good but then he then he slows down and he takes counsel with himself in the trinity father son spirit hey let's have a huddle here what are we going to do let's make man in our image and then he creates you and me and then when he says not that they were good you are very good you see, God, in an effort to display his glory in the world, created the Grand Canyon, and he created the oceans, and he created the stars and the sun. He said, all those are well and good, but the crown jewel of my creation is you. You are my masterpiece. You are in my image, and wherever you go, people will see me. That's why God calls Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, spread my image around the world. You are the crown jewel. You are the masterpiece of creation. You are created in the image of God. You are the most magnificent thing God has ever created. But I want you to notice what's going on here. There are huge implications for what it means for us to be in the image of God, and that is two sermons away. So come back in two weeks. But right now, there's something so important I want you to see here. So if you haven't been paying attention, pay attention now. This, was, this is a dense sermon, so hang in with me. Verse 26, when he says, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image after our, plural, likeness. Who is the us? Who is the our? It's not the angels. We're not created in the image of the angels. No, it is Father, Son, Spirit. Holy huddle. Let's create man in our image. And so, so, so track with me for a minute. God has always existed in the past. Y'all remember geometry class when you'd have the little dot with an arrow, right? It stops here, but it always goes this way. Two arrows going in eternity each direction. God has no beginning and no end. And so the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been in a relationship and community with one another for eternity past. Perfectly loving one another and perfect harmony with one another. And so when the Father and the Son and the Spirit come down and create you humanity, and they say, let's create them in our image. And he breathes the breath of life into our nose and makes us alive. Do you know what's happening? When God says, let's make him in our image, and from the eternity, from eternity past, you know what's happening? God is saying to you, let's expand the circle. God is saying inside the Trinity, let's make it bigger. He is inviting you into the Godhead itself. He is inviting you into the very family of God. From the first pages of the Bible, God is inviting you to not just be some other part of his creation, but to be a part of himself. He's inviting you in. You are not just some created thing that must obey his commands to some distant God who doesn't care about you. You are created in the image of your father. 
and he has invited you to join in his family. And all you have to do to enter in is take hold of Christ and you get to be in. So why did God create the world? So that his glory would shine around the whole world and all the beautiful things that he made. But mostly in creating you so that you would shine as the crown jewel of creation, but not just in creating you. No, God created the world so that he would, so that his glory would be on ultimate display. That as you ran away, as you wanted to be your own savior, your own Lord, your own king, and you wanted to go and, and live your life however you wanted, God was saying, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stop here. It's not going to end here. I'm going to go get you. And that several thousand years later, that the son of the Trinity would come down to be born and would die. That the son would be unmade. That darkness and uh, the world that was formless and darkness without void, that he would become that. That the son would experience decreation so that we could be recreated. See, from the very beginning, God wanted us to be a part of his family. That his glory might shine brightest for all to see. Have you entered the circle? Have you joined the family of God? I want you to hear something, guys. Your ticket's been paid. Your entry fee has been paid. All you must do is take hold of Christ and you get to be a part of the Godhead. You get to be brought into the family of God. Your sin has been paid for. You see, origin stories matter. The way we start stories matter. The who, the how, the why matter because the beginning sets the trajectory for the rest of the story. And this story, the true story, our story, is one that ends not in death, not in pain, not in silence, not in darkness, not in the void. It doesn't end in the ground. No, this story ends in a new creation. This story ends in a new heavens and a new earth. It doesn't end with God saying, you know what? They're going to screw it up. Let them have it. Forget it. Y'all come on up to heaven if you want. No, it ends with heaven coming down. Revelation 21, heaven and earth come, heaven comes down to earth. So God is coming to us. You see, God in the beginning said his creation was good. And even though right now, guys, we can look around and the world doesn't look very good. We can look around and we can see all the problems and see that the world does not look very good. But the day is coming when once again, God will be able to look around and say, my creation is good again. And he will be able to look at you in the eye and say, you are very good. I love you. You see, Ephesians 2 tells us that we are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. There are some of you in this room without a doubt that you think God is done with you. That you think God could not do anything else with your life. That you are too far gone, too broken, too messed up, too many mistakes. It's too late. And that is never true. Because God is not done creating. And in that moment in chapter 2 where God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and he comes down and he breathes in his nose. He breathes the Holy Spirit into his nose and makes him come alive. God is still doing that today. Because when we have faith, God has breathed his life into us. See, because the real problem, which we're going to get to next week, is that we are dead in our sin until we trust in Christ and are made alive. So the question that you have to answer this morning is, are you dead or alive? 
Are you a part of the family of God? Or are you a part of the rebellion? All you must do is take hold of Christ. And you get to be brought in. You get to be brought in so that the end of your story is not darkness, is not pain, is not suffering. It is one of hope. And it is one where God will look at you and he will say, you are very good. You are loved. You are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. You see, guys, we're not the heroes of this story. But you are in this story. You are the one who needs the rescuing. And that's exactly why Jesus came to be your great hero. That you need so bad. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we, we recognize that you are the creator of all things. And God, as we had a lot to unpack this morning and a lot to just kind of walk through to, to see these things, God, we pray that as we live in this world full of trials and tribulations, a world full of false gods, false religions, false beliefs, God, that you would help remind us or show us for the first time that you are the God of heaven, Father, Son, Spirit, that you created the world, you spoke it into existence, you created an ex nihilo out of nothing, and you can create something from our broken lives. You can make us new. And that you are recreating the world, you are bringing a new creation. You are fixing all things, and that you are inviting us to be a part of that story. God, reveal that and show us that this morning. For, for some of us, remind us of that so that we have that hope. But for others, God, this morning, who are in this room, who don't know you, who are far from you, who have maybe thought, Right, that, that religion or being a good person could save them. God, show them this morning that only Jesus can, that he's the hero, that we can't be the hero. God, show us that our hope is alone in you, the creator of all things, that you've invited us into your family, you've invited us into the circle. God, we love you in Christ and we pray. Stand and sing with us. Deacons are here, I'll be here. We'd love to pray with you. Anything going on in your life? If you want to know what it means to follow Jesus, we'd love to talk with you about that. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. See it all made new. We do. Is all creation groaning? Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The lion unto you.
Hallelujah. Conquered the grave. He's taken through and the Lamb died to ransom the saved. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He the Father truly love us? He does. Does the Spirit move among us? He does. Does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those He loves? He does. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to take the steel and open the scroll? See the lion on Judah conquered the grave. He is David's root and the lamb and died to ransom the slave. And tribe, every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom of priests to God, to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy? Is he worthy of this? He 